Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi, everybody. You are listening to Living the Dream. You are joined today with me, Dave, and... John. How's it going, John? I'm really well. How are you? I am, to be honest, apprehensive. Apprehensive? Well, it's a very apprehensive time. I mean, what's to go with this? I just saw that, you know, we're recording on today. The day of our Lord, 30th of July, 2020. And I saw there's 700 plus cases of corona down in Victoria. Yeah. And I think I think the thing that's really, there's a couple of different things, right? Like, I think what's definitely what's happening in Victoria, which is terrifying, is this is not people coming back to Australia on cruise ships that are sick. This mm-hmm. is the spread of, uh, of coronavirus, like, through the workplaces and work patterns of what we're currently calling essential workers Mm. who are also largely people in lower paid industries without sick pay, all that kind of stuff. Right. So this Mm. is like the, the, you know, like the impact it's having the potential impact it's having the contradictions that shows up are all really full on. And Mm. it's hard to see this like kind of going away particularly soon without a return to like a kind of hard, lockdown which also makes me very nervous as well i'm quite like like i live a very um secluded life i think probably at the moment i don't really go anywhere i see a small group of people but the kids still go to school and daycare i still go Mm. to shops when i need it i still can have people over to my house and that all sounds very banal but i'm quite uh, i would be loath to see those things go um as well as you know people die etc is that where you're at john yeah i think I think so. I mean, there's this, for me, like, yeah, I'm in the same boat in that, you know, I'm quite comfortable now around the house. <laughs> you know, like, we go out an awful lot anyway. But, you know, like, I, I think that probably there's a bit of frustration among some people about the whole lockdown thing. And I imagine that we'll probably see that what we're seeing is a lot more kind of resistance to it and a lot more people just, like, not doing the right thing. Um, yeah. And because it's gone on for so long, and obviously, as you mentioned, the thing about precarious work, that's so important. Like, people who need to go to work um, need to go to work, right? Like, mm. there's the people who spread who are spreading in, in Queensland, these two women who've been um, criminalised and dragged across the press uh, this morning, um, mm. were cleaners, I think, at a, at a school, like, very low-paid profession. You know, yeah. so people who are essential workers, yes, because cleaners are the most essential, kind of the most essential workers now, um, prowling the hallways, cleaning every handle and surface they can see and shift basis, getting paid very little to do it. Um, and it's just, that's a real problem because, yeah, on one hand, you've got these restrictions that people are probably going to more and more just kind of ignore for whatever reason whatever justification they feel. And then the problem of this precarious employment doesn't seem to be resolvable, like by, at least they're not willing to implement some sort of large scale uh, pandemic leave. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I think I, I'm surprised by how unproductive I have been. During, I, like, I thought when this was originally happening, it's like, all right, I'm going to really throw myself into it. I'm going to make all these podcasts. I'm going to really try to think about this. I'm going to write about this, you know, because I'll be in this kind of state of isolation. I've done very little. In fact, this podcast, which we are doing today, we've talked about for a really long period of time. It's taken yeah. ages um, to get together. And part of the difficulty is, is even like, I think, kind of doing sustained thinking at the moment to try to really see what's going on, I find quite mm. challenging and um, and mm. quite difficult. I don't know what it is. Uh, like uh, maybe it is just the kind of strange suspension and anxiety of the present makes it quite hard, you know, makes it a kind of a, a, a real um, yeah. effort to try to do any effort because I, mm. anyway, yeah. So no, we've been I, talking I, about this, this podcast for a while mm. and what we want to do. So, Listeners, what we're about to embark on is a three-part reading series uh, around the question of race in Australia. And so it's three parts on top of this. So it's going to be four shows, right? So we've picked three texts. So we've picked um, A New Britannia by Humphrey McQueen, White Nation by Gus and Hajj, and The White Possessive by Eileen Morton Robinson as three texts that we will read and we'll dedicate an episode to each one. And I also have this kind of vaguely, like not even half-baked, like quarter-baked idea in my head that I'd really like our listeners to, to kind of read along with us and to use both social media to kind of engage and raise things that we can then bring up in future episodes. But also like to kind of extend like an invitation if people are like I really like that or I thought that was shit. We might even add like an extra episode and get them on. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I've been enjoying listening into the Jacobins done this um, called Casualties of History, which is reading kind of chapter by chapter E.P. Thompson's classic, uh, The Making of the English Working Class, um, which is really fascinating historical book from the '60s about the uh, rise of working class or the or the kind of emergence of working class consciousness in Britain in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, um, which has been really interesting. And they have the same model where, you know, like people listen along, they have like chats afterwards. And I think it's a good kind of productive model. So we could even experiment with a live streaming event, John. I don't know. It sounds a bit, sounds a bit crazy. It does I've been doing it after live work. stream events, i.e. online lectures. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I it's like it's even recording to this. It's like another Zoom meeting, right? Yeah, like, but there'll still be there'll be still moments when we can yell at each other, like "I'm on mute. You're on mute. You're on mute." <laughs> um, so, John, why are we doing this? Like, we've talked about it for a while, but why are we like committing to to this as a little project to do? Good question. Um, I think that you know one of the things that's come up a lot in the podcast when we have our discussions is issues of race and issues of Australia's kind of racial history and how that history continues to kind of over-determine the present. And um, I've kind of certainly made it a bit of my, you know, ambition, my scholarly work and my, my kind of what, what we call in academia, I guess, in public outreach work, like in my article at the Jacobin and other places, sort of trying to talk about this racial, the racialized history of uh, particularly the Australian workers, the Australian workers movement, but Beyond that as well, to understand um, how does race work in um, how how does race work in Australia, I guess, and 
So from that perspective, obviously from a historical perspective, it's important, but then from a contemporary perspective as well, like we are in obviously a moment where um, issues of race are more and more present, like they would never went away, of course, but the tensions are really profound at the moment with Black Lives Matter in America and now obviously in Australia, but reflecting different histories of struggle in those different locations, obviously, and taking on different forms. But also, yeah, like kind of debates within the left about the influence of race, kind of what you might call the Marxist left, um, who are associated with these kind of BLM protest movements, Black Lives Matter protest movements, but um, have very different approaches to it. And I suppose there's a range of approaches from the left to issues of race, from sort of saying that race is, you know, not important, and really it's class that's important. There was an article um, which has been widely canned or panned, or both um, on Twitter recently from D- Dissent by Michael Waltzer, I believe, um, sort of saying, you know, there's no such thing as something called racial capitalism, which we'll probably talk about, um, this idea of racial capitalism. You know, there's capitalism and there's racism and they're different things. And that's one kind of approach you could take and which I think is very problematic, uh, but it's common in the left, I think, um, to see these as separate and not interrelated problems. But on the other hand, of course, there's kind of intersectional theory, which would argue that these things are so implicated and so complicated, both in politics and in our everyday lives, it's kind of po- impossible to disentangle race from class, from gender, from all these other forms of oppressions. And I think yeah. there's a lot of helpfulness in that critique as well. But I think equally, um, there are some interesting critiques that we might get into about that. So that's kind of where we're coming from, from a historical perspective and also from this kind of present perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting way of putting it, John. Like, I, I guess, like, for me, like, it comes from, like... Um, probably like motivated by a series of like dissatisfactions, right? Like the first dissatisfaction being with how um, race continues to mutilate people's lives, right? Like the, and I think we can dig into the different axes, how it does that. But secondly, like a dissatisfaction with how um, I see the function of race and the totality of capitalism globally or in Australia theorized by like by all sides i find kind of inarticulately dissatisfied with and i would extend that dissatisfaction um to my own understanding of it right where um like i don't think i have a good working serviceable knowledge to um diagnose what i think a really existing phenomena um and so to just to kind of push that like, and also I think the other thing, I don't want to forget this, the other important thing that is happening, of course, is like for the last, you know, there's a long series of struggles by against racism in Australia. Mm. But in the last couple of years, one of the, the, the kind of the spearhead of struggle in Australia seems to really be, you know, uh, Indigenous people in organisations such as Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, um, really breaking from the kind of, consensus or have you want to describe the normality of the Australian political situation and posing um, a really assertive politics that is like pulling a sizable minority of uh, non-Indigenous people with them. And then simultaneously, we have this like this revolt in the United States. And I saw this uh, talk recently. There's, I was able to, but it was an interview with uh, two members from the old um, drum revolutionary movement league of revolutionary black workers mm. and they um they're on facebook they've got a facebook group these 
these older um, okay. comrades that, veterans yeah, yeah called, called, uh, it's called Marxist glossary I think and I'm, I'm there and I said look that was really good I thought that was a really good piece of writing and they sent me like the actual raw footage and I was like you know you can watch that and it's brilliant mm. um, and there's this moment in where one of them um, is like uh, Daryl uh, Wasteline Mitchell I think his name is mm. um, you know says like can we at least admit something is fucking happening you know in mm. terms of the revolts that are going on there's mm-hmm. this you know, explosion in the united states and it's radiation around the the globe where black Lives matter matters the kind of revolt against racism has become the way that people are taking up both racial inequality but a broader dissatisfaction with the status quo as well right so um it's going on right um but also when i come to australia and try to think about in australia i don't have a serviceable model and, you know, these three books that we're talking about, A New Britannia, White Nation, The White Possessive, all very different works. I've only read one of them cover to cover, A New Britannia. So White Nation and The White Possessive will be new to me. But I think a thing that links them is they're kind of the theoretical activist book of a generation. Now, you're the historian. Jump in here. But... The way that I see it is like a New Britannia was a really important intervention in the 1960s, 1970s, um, Australian New Left. White Nation by Gus and Hajj, like when, um, when Pauline Hanson first exploded on the scene and people were organising against her, White Nation was the book that comrades around me were reading, right? And today, when people are talking about struggles in Australia, it's, it's Aileen Morton Robinson's work, Aileen Morton Robinson's work that... Um, is it Aileen or Eileen? Um, Eileen. 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 Um, Morton Robinson's work that that people um, like that, that's the text that they recommend, right? So these are I think these are good books to start with. Does that make sense, John? Yes. Yeah, and I think we'll get more into the kind of historical manifestations of that of the situations in which those books came from, because I think it is super important, as you say, to to locate them in that context. And yeah, it'd be interesting to get some personal reflections from you about kind of in being in the 90s and, and the importance of of Haj's work. Cause I've only come to it as kind of, you know, like, oh, there's some old interesting theory, you know? So I'd be I'm interested in, yeah, in, that's in that good. as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, um, but yeah, no, I, I think that's what, I think I think you're right. And there's an interesting sort of period as a historian, I come and look at, oh, well, we've got basically about 20, 25 year gap between each book, which I think is also kind of quite interesting. Yeah. Because we can kind of map what's actually going on and what are the, you know, what's the broader political context um, yeah. kind of of that these books are emerging out of and how does it reflect like changes in Australian capitalism and, um, you know, the superstructure around that in terms of immigration policy, in terms of, um, you know, legal cultural apparatuses. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. So, like, I guess maybe to get a bit of a grounding, like, maybe let's talk a bit about. How, our starting point about how we understand the issue before we do the reading, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, so I think um, when you think about Australia, I think um, racism is a fact. And by this, I mean that, well, what do I mean by that? I mean that people's experience of life within Australian society, one of the things that profoundly impacts it and what that life looks like is inequalities that are based around the category of what we might call race. Does that make sense? 
And I think there's, t- I see two historical axes. Like one axis, axis, axis is the dispossession and attempted genocide of the indigenous population from colonization. And the other axis is um, who gets to participate amongst the body of the citizenry. So that's who gets to migrate here and be counted as a citizen. And that for a long period of time, that was regulated um, ideologically and through policy, through something called the White Australia Policy. The White Australia Policy ends in the early 70s. Is that right, John? Yes. Yeah. But those inequalities maintain themselves. So one of the things that's really striking is that change in some ways. You know, I was reading like um, an old, um, an essay by Humphrey McQueen from he, in his book, Gallipoli to, Petro, Gallipoli to Petrov. Yeah, Gallipoli um, to Petrov. Yep. Which is a collection of essays and talking about the end of the white Australia policy and mm. what was um, kind of seen as normal attitudes within the Labor Party in terms of the white Australia policy would be unpalatable even in one nation today, right? So you have ideologically this major shift, but Mm. you don't have the end of racism, right? And so Mm. for me, trying to understand the functioning and existence of racism in Australia after the end of the white Australia policy is a real challenge. Okay, yeah. No, and I think there's a whole bunch of stuff in there, right? Like, I think... Yeah, the White Australia policy. Let's start kind of with the White Australia policy and start kind of from the big picture, which is, you know, that there's actually no policy called the White Australia policy. So that's something that is interesting, is the way that we have remembered the White Australia policy as really what it says in, on, on, the, on the title, which is that it's a policy to keep Australia white. And that's true, but it, well, when you actually break down what people meant when they talked about the White Australia policy, which was like a general kind of taken for granted fact of Australian politics was kind of several different pieces of legislation, which I think kind of shows the importance, shows kind of the breadth of what it actually meant. So on the one hand, of course, you've got the Immigration Restriction Act of 1901, the first uh, piece of legislation passed by the Australian Commonwealth uh, upon the uh, granting of um, some semi-nation-state status in 1901, uh, which is not implicitly a racialized document because only because the British wouldn't allow um, the wouldn't allow the colonial parliament to legislate racially based laws explicitly, and because they, they said basically this won't get through the Privy Council, which is the uh, body that. Uh, up until I'm not entirely sure, but for a long period of the 20th century, all Australian laws had to be run through the British British laws, and they could just veto them if they didn't like them. So um, they said basically we're not going to let that happen. So what the White Australia policy does then effectively is it it finds some interesting, funny ways of getting around that problem by imposing something called a dictation test, which is the operating really operating function of that of the Immigration Restriction Act, which is. It means that basically any migrant to Australia, we will test you on your proficiency in English or any other European language. So that's the the key f- 
the key factor in keeping people out is this is the use of this dictation test and that any other European language is quite important if you want to keep out some like educated people who you don't like. You people who could speak multiple languages, including English, for example, then there's other pieces of legislation that are connected to this. Um, the Pacific Island uh, Removal Act, which was passed in 1902, I think, which was designed and was really argued for by the Labour Party in Queensland in particular, um, to remove or called Kanaka or really South Pacific Island laborers from Australia. So part of this was keeping Australia white, keeping people out. And the other part, which was tied into, um, which is exemplified in the Pacific Island Removal Act is um, literally kicking people out. And also connected to this, just the final piece of legislation, there are others including the um, Diseases, Diseases Control Quarantine Acts and whatnot. Um, but is these various protection acts that exist across Australia to control Aboriginal people at this time. And the protection acts themselves, which is this funny language that emerges in the 1890s um, to kind of say, well, Aboriginal people are, um, need to be protected effectively um, from various vices, including themselves, including other people. Sometimes like in Queensland, it was mixed up. So the protectors, the, the legislation in Queensland was called the, um, um, Aboriginal Protection and, and uh, Prohibition on the Sale of Opium Act, which was basically saying we're protecting Indigenous people from the vices of Chinese people who are trying to sell them drugs. Um, so there's an interesting kind of meshings of these different things um, in that in that context. But these we need to also see, I think, part, as part of the White Australia policy, as it was implemented in the early 20th century, that uh, Aboriginal policy was definitely part of that in terms of first this Protection Act, which is basically around the idea of race die off. The Aboriginal people were going to be dying out as a race. And then later into the 1930s, when you get policies of assimilation or absorption, which um, have similar functional operations, but which um, just kind of change the, the, the policy settings, I suppose. So that's the big heavy stuff out of the way. And I think there's, but there's a lot more in there to talk about. Yeah, okay. So why? Why, <laughs> like, why does Australia have a have a white Australian policy? Why do we go about this? Well, yeah, maybe we should have started there. Well, a few reasons. I guess the big reason it's why we need why Australia feels that it needs a white Australia policy is the kind of location question. And basically, Australia is you know, and this is something that we'll refer to in all the books that we look at um, is what Australia is a little isolated outpost of. Europe in what is seen as a very dangerous part of the world, down in Asia, literally kind of as far away from Britain as you can really get. So there's a sense that Australia is imperiled, is, is, in, is in danger from the teeming masses of Asia. And I'm going to use a lot of, yeah, like I'm tend to kind of try to use the language at the time when I uh, so, talk about this stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so there's one thing is that, you know, that there's this, that there's this concept of the yellow peril, which is quite you know, scary to Australians in terms of our geographic position. And does, does that emerge in the 19th century? It does emerge in the 19th century. And really, I mean, you can tie it back, like in the work that I've done, kind of when I teach immigration history, I tend to tie it back at least really to the gold rushes in the 1850s, which is really the first time that we get significant uh, Asian immigration to Australia and mm. 
I also think it's important to view this not just in the Australian context, but it's Australia within a broader colonial framework um, in that Australia is a white settler society. And this is covered well in uh, a book uh, Marilyn Lake and Henry Reynolds wrote about 10 years ago called Drawing the Global Colour Line, which in itself is a drawing a quote from W.E.B. Du Bois, du Bois or Du Bois, depending on um, if you stick with the original French pronunciation. Um, so there's a sense in which, yeah, the white Australia policy is about keeping Australia white, but it's part of a broader sense of whiteness, which is emerging at the time that Du Bois um, diagnoses when he talks about um, is the development of a white, of a, of a sense of imperiled whiteness across the settler colonial world in South Africa, in America, in Canada, in New Zealand. That there's a sense in which the rising tide of colour, as they put it, um, in, as seen by all sorts of things in terms of the Indian, from the Indian mutiny in the 1860s through to the Japanese victory over the Russians in the um, in, um, Russo-Japanese War in 1905 is a really significant and kind of you know, under, understood turning point. Um, you know, the, 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 there's a sense in which whiteness is imperiled across the world and that white nations need to work together to police and to share ideas of policing race, both in terms of immigration restriction and in terms of control of indigenous or uh, native communities. Do we have some sense of understanding of what role Australia plays in the British Empire in the 19th century? Hmm. Mm. I mean, Australia is, I mean, it's kind of getting slightly beyond my wheelhouse, but I mean, Australia economically is increasingly important in terms of production of food and production of key goods like wool, which is really important in the British market, right? So mm. Australia is increasingly important within the British, within the British empire in an economic sense. Um, and Throughout the 19th century, obviously, the, um, you know, Britain, Australia is important until the 1870s, really, um, as a dumping ground for convicts. But increasingly, it's also important as a, um, a nodal point for trade with Asia and also a place to kind of offload um, surplus populations you know, who weren't mm. convicts as well, but free settlers, people who, um, who um, really could not we, who could not be sustained within the within Britain as a massive industrializing force? You know, it was, you know, um, the effect of capitalist industrialization with massive increases in population, um, and this was had to be off offshored somehow. So Australia was a location where a lot of this population was offshored, um, but also, and this is something where we can bring the Labour Party. In the emergence of the labor movement in Australia, which we'll talk about in more depth when we read Humphrey's book, but really the Labour Party in Australia emerges and is and really profits off the fact that Australia is a tight labor market. In that, you know, yes, we Australia is constantly seeking more British migrants, and Britain is kind of constantly getting rid of some of its more troublesome populations to Australia. But those numbers are never big enough to really create like a huge um, like kind of reserve army of labor in Australia, at least not continuously, because there's a very strong boom bust cycle in Australia as there are in all kind of resource based economies that are, you know, um, heavily tied into global trade networks. Yeah. So, so sorry, I could ramble. <laughs> no, no, no. It's really interesting. And I, I guess like um, where, where it's trying to move, where I really want to get to is, 
you know, developing this understanding of why this happens and how this, you know, relates to the, the structure of the world system and the patterns of capital accumulation, right? Like, um, and, and cause I guess like if I was to look at my kind of, they were so influenced by America when it comes to yeah. debates about race, right? But there's lots of different American readings. So like the stuff that listeners of the show know that I really like is the publication Hard Crackers and the tradition going back to Noel Ignatiev. I've just started reading um, a very short book called The Future is Up to Us by Nelson Peary, who comes out of kind of like the black Marxist tradition. He was involved in the League, the, uh, League of Revolutionary Black Workers, really interesting kind of guy. And, mm. you know, so they do, you know, Nelson Peary more than Ignatiev really wants to link how um, race in the United States relates to transformations in the mode of production, I guess. Um, but both of them, I guess, kind of talk about the function of whiteness. And, you know, whiteness has become one of those terms that you know, everyone is using, so therefore it means a lot of different things. But whiteness really functions as a way that you get a certain section of the working class and by giving them clearly bordered access to um, uh, both a psychological wave and materially better conditions, you attempt to form an alliance of, with them to capital if that makes sense. Mm. And so my suspicion, like the thing that I, I therefore think about is like, that, is that what the white Australia policy function is like? <sighs> and this to me, um, you know, something that it connects with and is an essay that has been incredibly influential to me is Bruce McFarlane's essay, Australia's role in world capitalism, which is from an old battered penguin collection from the seventies called Australian capitalism towards a socialist critique. I used to have and that book and I might, did I give it to you? So no, I no, I bought it. mine. I bought mine for two bucks. I'm pretty sure it's two bucks, oh, yeah. three bucks. Sorry. Cause it's right in front of me. Three bucks from like a back shelf at the new internationalist bookshop. You know, like I was flicking through, I'm like, oh, what's this? This looks vaguely interesting. And it's been a fucking gold mine, right? Like, yeah. but one thing that McFarlane talks about is he says, you know, what's, what's unique to Australian capitalism or, or special mm. to Australian capitalism is that capital accumulation here has been fueled by capital coming into the country. So Australia's always had capital coming in to invest mm. and then being able to export out valuable commodities, right? And one of the things that he says is this is due to Australia's role in the in imperialism is the term he uses. Now, originally UK, British imperialism, and then American imperialism. And he says one of the things that it creates is that for capital to develop in Australia, there was there was like a bit more give in the system. Like it didn't have to squeeze everything out of the working class. Does that make sense? Because there was a surplus of capital coming in. There was money to be borrowed to, to, fu to, you know, to fund that development, which meant there's a kind of a space there for a different kind of labor politics, right? Mm -hmm. A non-revolutionary labor politics, I think effectively is what he's arguing there, which yeah. seems to kind of give the um, groundwork for explaining like why laborism takes the, the shape that it does take. And mm. also to throw this back into the historian's corner, like how much is white, uh, the white Australia policy, a labor movement policy, uh, a movement that the working class is supporting? How much is an elite project? Right, right, right. Well, what do I want to say there first, before we get to that, which is really important, but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, my argument around, and this is maybe going to connect it to actually my response, but thinking about 
McFarlane and thinking about, sorry, what he says about um, this inflow of capital. Yeah, that, that is really important. I mean, um, particularly that was what really, the, that was one of the reasons that um, Britain, you know, massively expands its empire in the later part of the 19th century. It's really about finding new places to invest, finding new people to, you know, proletarianize, finding new people, finding new 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 locations. It's rushed for empires and just because Britain and other nations enjoy seeing their flags everywhere. Although part of it is that. Uh, it, it's also this need, this constant need for expansion, this constant need to find new, new outlets, new locations for, for capital to flow to. But I think, yeah, that can also kind of de-agentialize, I think. The, what was actually happening in Australia at the time. I think, yes, it does open a space for the Australian labor movement to operate in a different kind of way, to opt to become a reformist movement. But I do think as well that the absolute centrality of race to the way that the labor, the mainstream labor movement function is, is more than that. And I think that the Australian labor, that on the one hand, yes, capital is investing a lot in Australia, yes, and this is important, but Labor is also very conscious of the fact that they want to keep that labor supply as small as they possibly can in order to ensure the success of their, um, you know, white working man's paradise, which is increasingly evident um, from the late 19th century onwards when you've got um, increasing success in new unionism, you've got arbitration uh, across most of the colonies is functioning in the late 19th century and is kind of brought in as a national policy in the um, in in the early parts, um, I think 1906, I think it was. But um, the question of whiteness, I think, is important. But I think that, yeah, whiteness is part is a bargain, in a way, between particular people who are deemed as white with capital. It basically says, yeah, you know, well, in exchange for your kind of, um, you know, hegemony, your kind of um, uh, acceptance of the of, of capital, you'll get certain rights and privileges. And that's kind of not maybe that's something naughty over. I think it might be David Rodinger's kind of argument. Um, what's his book called, Dave? Do you remember? Wages of Whiteness. Wages of Whiteness. Yeah. So there's there's that kind of argument there, which I think, but I think also like these particular laborites are playing a big role in constructing what whiteness really means. And if you look at the labor cartoons of the period, if you look at the way that labor is articulating its ideas, then you know they're constructing a particular type of white masculinity, which is really important to the Australian experience, I think. So I think it's important to see this as kind of a co-constructive paradigm. And that kind of does lead us to that, to that second question of, is it an elite or is it a labor? Is I think, well, it's a bit of both. I don't think we can discount either, or probably annoy particular Queensland-based Trotskyists by saying you know, that I think that the, it's not an entirely elite phenomenon, Hey, Phil Griffiths. Um, but I do think that um, there is a section of, obviously the elite accepts it, as I'm talking about in the context of, of whiteness, but equally it is constructed, that idea of whiteness is being constructed and being pushed. And you see that in the Pacific Island Labourers Bill really clearly um, in terms of how the Australian labour movement is going above and beyond any requirement to maintain its economic vantage point. It really wants to maintain whiteness as much as possible. So this, this is really interesting because I think this has to be faced um, up front as a challenge to, and let me say some big words here, the teleology of class that Marx and Engels develop, particularly in books like the Communist Manifesto. 
because um, and so by teleology here to teleology here, I just mean the idea that you have some kind of phenomena and it develops in a certain direction. So if you read the Communist Manifesto, you get a particular idea that the development of capitalism um, produces necessarily this class of people, a working class who are the uh, fundamental source of profit through their exploitation. But in this experience, they're kind of shorn of all their previous kind of modes of um, ideological and identity identification and become a new force that have no ties to the existing social world and thus the potential to kind of overcome it and instigate communism, right? Mm. Um, I think that's a very simplification of, but it's certainly there. The idea is certainly present. I Mm. think the historical experience doesn't necessarily verify that. (laughs) So we could go back to, you know, work like Sylvia Federici in Caliban and the Witch. She makes a point, which I think is kind of fundamental to my understanding that the, the, the production of the working class is from the first instant the production of hierarchy within the working class. Mm-hmm. And to produce a body of people who can be put to work and exploited, like it emerges um, with internal differenti- differentiations and those differentiations mm. um, might predate the emergence mm. of capitalism. Probably a really complicated question about how capitalism emerges and transforms out of particular societies. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of really crucial there but also then understandings about how um, that class in struggle Mm -hmm. might be pulled to other politics that aren't communist politics right yeah which are politics about maintaining certain um, the rights and privileges of certain sections of the working class and engaging in other alliances and endnotes have a really good long essay i think in in notes four, it might be called a history of separation. Maybe one of the where they talk mm. about this, how like uh, the uh, the working class movement doesn't become this kind of blank universal space, but becomes a set of national projects. And I think also what ties in with with there that it often has a respectability politics as well. Yep. That the worker that is being produced becomes the new the new moral man, and in this case, the new white moral man. So I think mm. that's um. Look, I then think you can probably push that too far the other way Mm. and then says this represents just the complete um, integration of what Mm. people might call a white working class or whatever through these privileges. And thus they're, they're, you know, like the classic Mm. example is, um, you know, the the weather underground turning up at a general electric strike with signs that say, you know, VC are going to kill you white pigs dead, right? Like... Mm that kind of new new left politics is pushing it the other way. But I think really talking about race um, from the way that we're beginning to do now is locating it in that problem, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I think it's really, yeah, it's really, that is really important to think about where does whiteness, yeah, like, and then you're talking, you're talking about, you know, that the Caliban and the Witcher thing is really important, but it kind of takes me back to E.P. Thompson in a way and thinking about, well, where does class come from? Yeah, like people who become workers, even in Britain, like, you know, you go back to some pretty classic examples, like, you know, they literally bring their cows with them from the countryside. You know, like they move to these kind of new industrial cities, but they bring with them their agricultural animals. They bring with them their popular culture. They bring with them their understandings, their hatreds. And in these are, you know, like these aren't just 
newly transformed kind of homo economicus or, or whatever you might want yeah. to think about. These are people who have histories and who have cultures of civility and cultures of resistance. Yeah, totally. And that's what, that's what yeah. Thompson's all about in, in that book. And I think it's important to understand, yeah, that, you know, there are these, that capitalism doesn't create a new man. Capitalism brings, brings oh, so man and woman were, you know, being, needlessly gender specific here mm. but you know um it doesn't create a new person it doesn't create a new subjectivity necessarily at least not straight away and i think in australia you see that really clearly where there's also these debates which you don't need to get into is australia necessarily a capitalist country in this time or is it really some sort of strange um, yeah when does that develop i think yeah. we probably will we will i think that in the later like, episodes not now yeah, totally. Like I, we were going to have a short episode and we we're already running yeah. out of time about, you know, <laughs> right. it's, you know, working from home, have to get back to work um, in a moment. Like the point, I, I guess, um, like if you have someone like Ignatiev, right, mm. who's really important in the sense of developing a notion of in the American context. And I think I've said this on, on the show before. I, he's in some essays said that his theory of, of like whiteness he doesn't believe that it translates outside of the United States, which obviously is very different. And he was very hostile towards the end of his life um, about how whiteness was broadly being used. But mm. particularly when, you know, he develops this theory with others as part of the Sojourner Truth organization and later, like it's not the last word. Like they see this no. as a set of privileges and identity that is always unstable because the, mm. the people that attempts to win towards capital will rebel right and they yeah. can be broken from it and they can be one to a politics of opposing racism mm. outright you know so like their whole thing was you can't just go black and white workers unite and they'll solve everything but yeah. you can win sizable minorities um to begin with of people who are racialized as white to the struggle against racism as part of winning class unity in practice like yeah. i think we'll we'll engage with those ideas um, more in the future. There was a couple of things I just wanted to um, steamroll through quickly just to get <laughs> out there. Mm. Like, just so these are some of my starting points. So I still think if I still believe them, right? So something that's really influenced my thinking is a book by Wallerstein and Balabar. I think it's called Race, mm -hmm. Class, Nation. Or it's those three words yeah. in some combination. Race, nation, class, class, nation, rate. You know, what something yeah. like, where Balabar makes the argument that around about end of the 70s, early 80s, race begins to shift from being conceived of um, in relation to biology to culture. Mm. And this is then taken up later by Hart and Negri in Empire, where they say that race used to be about like maintaining borders of exclusion. And mm. now it's about borders of hierarchical integration. Right. Mm. So there used to be firm lines that says this people here, those people over there. Now it's about like everyone is in the one space then it's about managing the hierarchy within that space. And this probably gets to my most controversial point, John. Oh, dear. Um, so you ready for it? Yes. Are we so, getting are we cancelling you? Uh, I hope not. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Look, I'm just not so sure about the, oper the, the, the utility of whiteness mm. to explain like... Um, like, so if the white Australia policy, part of it, you know, one axis, dispossession, attempted genocide against Indigenous people, mm -hmm. that is still really clearly a factor of Australian society today, right? Like undeniably a factor of Australian society today in terms of the, the treatment that Indigenous people uh, are subjected to um, by the state and society as a whole. 
that's totally mm. but in terms of those people who used to get let in to the to that restricted labor market right um i'm not sure i i think the category of the racialized cat like the biological category of whiteness has mm. been replaced by a, a looser category of australian right mm. and that is a cultural category that is default coded as being white but mm. it's fluffier right oh. and it that's what i'm just going to pose so that that's you know mm. that's probably the most amount of thinking that i've um i've got behind it so that's one of my controversial points i want to get down we'll see if that sustains a reading through the next texts something i did want to ask about and we're running out of time now so you've got to do it really shortly why does the white australia policy end john oh yeah so we didn't actually get there did we um yeah i like the idea of, of fluffiness actually and I'm, I'm thinking about you know that yeah there's like, i think it's interesting to see whiteness as a hierarchy which is constantly changing like white australia policy even during its operations um police did ever-changing definition of whiteness like who got to be white changed so, so I just italians became white yeah. irish became white then peoples of other colors started to gain the privileges which some of the privileges that we might see as inherent in whiteness so so i'm just going to jump in here john so like my understanding and tell me if i'm wrong here yeah is that under the white australia policy people use the term in public discourse white all the time mm, they used yes they did yeah they would use white they would use british they would use white yeah. australian they would so, use on lots of lots of terminologies which effectively meant so i think that life. matters i think like at yeah. least on some level that matters and i think yep. very few people talk in language of white in australia but they do talk in language of australian right no i think i think you're right I think and even if that's yep. default coding is someone you know who lives mm. in summer bay in 985 right mm. like I think at some level that change matters, right? Like, yeah. um, and I guess we'll get into that in the readings, but end of the white Australia. And I think it's related yeah. to the end of the white Australia policy. Why well, does it end, John? Yeah. Give us well, a, I mean, well, the white Australia policy ends effectively because the, um, because it's no longer a appropriate um, way of managing race anymore. It doesn't speak to the realities of Australia anymore. I mean, from 1945 onwards in particular, you get a huge huge amounts of people coming over to Australia who are not previously considered white. People from uh, first, from um, Northern Europe, particularly the Baltic states. And then once they kind of run out, you, there's a there's need for labor, this need for labor in the new industries, drives them to Italy, to Greece, then to even to like Turkey, Lebanon, lots of other places. So by the time, by the end of the 1960s, the white Australia policy, the immigration, like what it used to be is no longer really functional because, you know, there's, it, it's, it's no longer really talking to the realities of Australia. And more com in the other, there's a sense in which, how does the policy actually get changed in general? Well, in 1958, the Immigration Restriction Act is replaced with the Migration Act, which removes the dictation test. And there are several other reforms in the 1960s that really kind of remove any sort of racial categories from the Migration Act, when effectively don't really change much about the actual intake of people. You know, you don't get many, if any, Asian people during this time. And then Whitlam gets to declare that he's dead, that the policy is dead and buried in the 1970s. And really only has to change a few little things, like he stops um, the immigration department from taking um, 
racial metrics when it lets people in, for example, like, you know, sort of some, some stuff around the edges really is what Whitlam really does when he gets rid of the white Australia policy. So it's, it's a slow process. One historian called it the long, slow death of white Australia. And I think that that is probably the best way to think about how did the white Australia policy end? And then the other question is, of course, did it really end? Or, yeah. And when do we actually see big numbers of Asian, huge numbers of Asian migration, if you want to say it that way? Well, it's not really until the late eighties and into the nineties that we actually start to see a real change that reflects the fact that the white Australia policy is no longer there. And we don't see the end mm. of public debate around immigration. Well, no, I mean, it, kind of, it, it, it goes away for a little bit in like the late 70s. <laughs> and then it reemerges very strongly um, in, the, in the early 1980s. Yeah. And, and so this has been um, an argument both from rights and lefts yeah. around who is welcome here, who can be integrated, who is a threat. Um, yeah. culturally and economically and who gets sent entertained in camps right well, yeah, that, you know, and how yeah. can people come here who and how like yeah. so really like the the um the politics of it hasn't gone away neither has the politics uh, the, the practices and politics of dispossession genocide and the rebellion and resistance against them of yeah. indigenous people right so absolutely like even with, and it's really interesting right like i think it's mm. part of the explosive moment where everyone in the public sphere today would declare themselves as an opponent of the white Australia po policy, right? You know, I think even Pauline Hanson doesn't support a white Australian policy. Well, I mean, no, I mean, she's, you know, like, it, this is a thing is quite interesting, you know, is that one nation has, you know, like changed its tune in terms of keeping out Asian now, it's more in keeping out Muslims or, or not even that. Like it's, yeah, like it's even, yeah, the, the we could talk about this more kind of I imagine in the in the Ghassan Hajj yeah. reading in the yeah. Hajj hour or more, we'll be we will need to be talking, yeah, about how Pauline what does Pauline Hansen mean? How does Pauline Hansen really sort of represent a sort of yeah. a reemergence of a kind of unvarnished racialized laborism? Yeah. Kind of so, in the nineties. Yeah. That's great. So look, in terms of going forward, I guess what we'll do is what do you reckon about a month? Like, we'll try to read a book a month. So, is that realistic? I think, I think that's realistic, especially cool. for those of us who might have, like, non-academic jobs. It's like yourself. Like <laughs> you myself, spend yeah. a bit of time, like, kind of actually Man, reading things. I'm finding reading really fucking hard. And contrary to popular opinion, academics very rarely get to actually read very much. No, no. You know, no, we no. read, like, two words, and it's like, yeah, we'll quote that. That's yeah, fine. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I can write a review on it now. Um, exactly. So, look, cool. I, I will, if I've got the energy, try to, like create some buzz on the interwebs yes. about it, but we'd really like people to read along with us. Yep. So we'll be reading A New Britannia by uh, Humphrey McQueen, aiming for like the end of August to do a show at the end of August. I reckon that that sounds very achievable, Dev. Yep. Um, if people already would like to invite you um, into a conversation about this, um, today is just like the the, the, the start, I guess. Um, really interested. I'm going to try to read some supplementary literature at the same mm. time. Again, American literature. I bought um, Racecraft by the uh, oh, yes. Field Sisters because I've read some of their small essays and there's something in it that I really like. Um, yes. We'll talk so, about that. That'll, yeah, be, so, that'll be good. So hopefully I'll, I'll try to dig into that at, at the same time. But I think we'll see, you know, I think these are core texts. I really would encourage people to... Um, 
if, if they'd like to, to read along with us, to provide all kinds of feedback, critical feedback, really welcome, right? You know, we've had listeners in the past. If you don't want to come on the show, write us and tell us why we're wrong and we will read those, those criticisms and we'll engage in the debate there, right? I think we really want to do that. Yeah, I want people to shout at me as much as possible. Ah, uh, look, I enjoy doing it. Um, <laughs> so, I, and also, like, uh, stay safe, everyone. It's, yeah. um, it's funny and challenging times. Um, there's some really exciting, obviously, the, the black, like, you know, as we're doing this, you know, what's happening in the world right now, there are um, white suburban dads with, um, with, with uh, leaf blowers blowing away, um, you know, tear gas from federal cops mm. in Portland, right? That society, like the revolt against racism is mm. doing something to that society, right? Like that's mm. crazy and exciting. And, um, you know, how do, we, how do we make sense of that and what's going to come next? You know, super interesting. All right, John, Absolutely. anything else before we finish up? Well, I think we had a pretty good discussion. I think that was, right. that was good. Good, right. to, good to talk with you. All right. Um, catch, catch you soon, John. Take it easy. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Oh, also, Twitter, John, at John Pacini. Me, I'm at with Sober Senses. Um, we'll go from there. Thanks. All right. All right. See you, everyone. Talk soon. Bye-bye. There's already so much pain, so much pain, so much pain. There's already so much pain, and there ain't nothing else we can do. Hey, she loud. There's already so much pain, so much pain, so much pain. Got tanks coming through right here, through right here, through right here. We got tanks coming through right here, and there ain't nothing else we can do. All together, we got tanks coming through right here, through right here, through right here.